0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On Monday, the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights published a report titled, Fueling the Fire, How Social Media Intensifies U.S. Political Polarization and What Can Be Done About It, written by the center's deputy director, Paul Barrett, research fellow Grant Sims, and me. Then on Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal published an article in a series of exclusives based on leaked internal documents from Facebook, with the headline, Facebook tried to make its platform a healthier place, it got angrier instead. The subhead reads, internal memos show how a big 2018 change rewarded outrage and that CEO Mark Zuckerberg resisted proposed fixes. Today you'll hear from one of the authors of that Wall Street Journal exclusive, followed by a conversation between Paul Barrett, Grant Sims, and me about the report we produced together. First, let's hear a sliver of how Mark Zuckerberg addressed the question of whether Facebook contributes to the profound divisiveness in U.S. politics at a March congressional hearing where he was questioned about the role the platform played in creating the conditions for the January 6th insurrection at
1: the U.S. Capitol. The reality is our country is deeply divided right now, and that isn't something that tech companies alone can fix. We all have a part to play in helping to turn things around, and I think that starts with taking a hard look at how we got here. Some people say that the problem is that social networks are polarizing us, but that's not at all clear from the evidence or research. Polarization was rising in America long before social networks were even invented. And it's falling or stable in many other countries where social networks are popular. Others claim that algorithms feed us content that makes us angry because it's good for business, but that's not accurate either. I believe that the division we see today is primarily the result of a political and media environment that drives Americans apart. And we need to reckon with that if we're going to make progress. Now, I know that technology can help bring people together. We see it every day on our platforms. Facebook is successful because people have a deep desire to connect and share, not to stand apart and fight. And we believe that connectivity and togetherness are more powerful ideals than division and discord, and that technology can be part of the solution to the challenges our society is facing. And we are ready to work with you to move beyond hearings and get started on real reform. Thank you.
0: The Wall Street Journal's report by Keith Hagee and Jeff Horowitz says that when data scientists at Facebook made management aware that changes to its algorithms were making Facebook an angrier place and put forward ideas to, quote, curb the tendency of the overhauled algorithm to reward outrage and lies, Mr. Zuckerberg resisted some of the proposed fixes, the documents show, because he was worried they might hurt the company's other objective, making users engage more with Facebook, unquote. I interviewed Keach Hagee last week to learn more about the Wall Street Journal report.
2: I'm Keech Hagee. I'm a reporter at the Wall Street Journal.
0: So Keach, I have to ask you first, before we talk about these various Facebook revelations, how did you get access to all of this information? Did someone back up with a truck full of USB drives, thumb drives, and dump it out in front of the Wall Street Journal?
2: Well, Justin, that's exactly how it happened. Um, you know, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you we always protect our sources. So I can't really answer that question.
0: I appreciate it. Okay. I had to ask, uh, of course, because this is an extraordinary trove of information you've gone through and that you've reported on. And today we're on story number three. How many more in the series can we expect?
2: (laughs) Can't answer that question either.
0: Okay, there you go. Probably by the time my listeners uh, get this podcast, which will be Sunday, uh, we may know the answer. or Perhaps we will be entering week two of this extraordinary series of exclusives. Um, so we started the week with a report on the way that Facebook treats its VIP users and influencers and why the rules for that lot are different from typical users. Uh, then you came with a report on Instagram, and in particular, the company's internal knowledge of research that shows that Instagram may have some uh, negative mental health and other kind of uh, concerning effects, particularly for teens and particularly teenage girls. And then we get today's report, which is around Facebook's role in creating more division and driving outrage and polarization. Can you walk people through this particular report?
2: So this story is about an algorithm change that Facebook made in 2018. And, you know, Facebook makes algorithm changes all the time, but this one was different because they, they announced it, they did press around it, there was a lot of messaging around it, because it was a pretty big one. And the change was to put emphasis on interactions between people, so what they called meaningful social interactions. They are going to start highlighting meaningful social interactions in newsfeed and to downplay what had been doing really well up to that point, which was professionally produced content, especially video. So it was sort of a a multi-fold change. On one hand, it was creating a new algorithm that rewarded interactions from people close to you. So the algorithm thought it was better for you to have someone closer to you interacting with you than someone far away and they would wait that accordingly but the more important part of it and ultimately the more damaging part of it was it was this huge focus on engagement and especially comments so it created this enormous incentive for people to get comments on their stories and that's where the problems really started
0: you Go through uh, some various points of evidence uh, for the change and then the response. And uh, you have an interesting kind of story about a particular person that uh, brought a warning to Facebook. tell us a little bit about how BuzzFeed's Jonah Peretti comes into this?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I've been, I'm a media reporter and I've been um, covering media and BuzzFeed for a long time. And, you know, I think what everyone knows about BuzzFeed is that it really built itself initially through its wizardry um, about going viral on Facebook and other social media. But really, that was like its special sauce at the beginning. Um, and so I think when Jonah Peretti speaks, it means something to Facebook because few people understand how Facebook works outside Facebook, as well as someone like Jonah Peretti. right? In the fall of 2018, so not too long after they had rolled out this algorithm, he writes an email to a top Facebook executive, basically saying, hey, you know, this meaningful social interactions algorithm that you guys rolled out, it does not promote meaningful social interactions. It actually does something close to the opposite of that. And it is making us feel like we have to make bad content or underperform. And as an example, he pointed to a BuzzFeed post, which was titled 21 Things Almost All White People Are Guilty of Saying which had done really well on Facebook. And you know, it went basically viral, but the reason it, it happened, it was sort of like a jokey post, but the reason it did so well is because on Facebook underneath this sort of jokey post were all these people just arguing with each other about race and then yelling at Buzzfeed for writing it in the first place. And even though it was not a very satisfactory you know, read or experience for anyone involved, This was like gold for the algorithm. This is what the algorithm was sort of now created to reward. And it did really well. So his point is, look, this is the kind of stuff that's doing well, which is not that great. Um, Meanwhile, you know, we're doing a lot of other great stuff like animals and self-care stuff that like theoretically ought to be just as viral and isn't. So there's something specific about the divisiveness piece of all this, that your current version of the algorithm is rewarding. And it's a problem. And what we saw from these documents is that again and again, people inside Facebook pointed to this email as evidence that they had to do something. They had to make a big change.
0: But they appeared not to do something. And it turns out we're in now a global Skinner box. And it's not just BuzzFeed reporters that are responding to these algorithmic, you know, uh, incentives, but rather politicians, political parties, and citizens across the world you go on to talk about uh, multiple countries where problems begin to emerge. Can you kind of take us to a couple of the regions you cover?
2: The Facebook researchers actually went out into the world, into the political world, especially into Europe and talked to political parties about, OK, what was the impact of this 2018 algorithm change? And the feedback that they got was pretty jaw dropping, as we saw in these documents. So they heard, for example, overall, the complaint was sort of consistent. This incentivizes the most divisive and sensationalistic content. Um, It's forcing us to put out the worst stuff. And in some cases, these parties said we actually had to change our policy platform so that our content would do well on Facebook. So some of the more eyebrow-raising examples were from Poland. In Poland, uh, a party said, you know, Specifically because of the algorithm change, our communications on Facebook went from 50 50 positive negative to 80% negative. And in Spain, um, there were a lot of similar complaints. The political party said basically, we've learned that the only way to really get meaningful distribution on Facebook is to target our opponents. So we're not trying to communicate with like our potential voters, but like people who disagree with us. And then when that provokes negative comments, those negative comments are like the engine that sort of propels this communication across the platform. And what the political parties are really complaining about is that before the change, um, they, used, they would be able to communicate with their constituents or stakeholders with pages. So they could kind of, if you liked a politician's page, you were going to hear communication from them and it could be sort of more direct. And after the algorithm change, You had to basically earn your right to distribution across Facebook by getting engagement. So by getting comments, likes, reshares, and it turns out that people are most likely to reshare or comment on things that really tick them off.
0: Do we have any evidence that the company looked into this phenomenon in the United States?
2: In terms of political parties, no, at least from the documents that that we saw. They certainly did look at what the... American uh, media impact would be. And we're like carefully looking at, you know, the, di- the different um, political profile of who is impacted, but not parties, no.
0: So a lot of people have observed this and sort of intuited that something's wrong here, that, that for some reason, we're seeing various parties, as you say, kind of use one another's communications as a way to kind of pick fights and uh, grow engagement. We published a piece recently about that phenomenon happening in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for instance, where you kind of extremists on on both sides used content posted by the other side in order to rile up their own people. So it, it sort of feels like you know there's quite a lot to this, um, and could potentially have had some significant impacts on on global affairs. Do you have evidence that the company has? walked back these changes, address these problems in any way?
2: Yes, they definitely have. In the documents, there is uh, evidence that they realized the problems. For sure, they realized the problems inside the company and did make a change to change one part of the MSI algorithm, which is something called downstream MSI. So downstream MSI is basically the algorithm guessing how likely a certain piece of content is to be shared in the future or to generate like a long chain of reshares. And so you're basically more likely to see something in your feed, even if it's from someone kind of random and not close to you, if Facebook has determined, oh, this is something that future people are likely to reshare. And their own researchers studied this and found that that particular aspect of MSI, which is not all of MSI, but it's sort of like a subset of MSI, um, was really tied to increased uh, prevalence of misinformation and kind of like the, the most to- toxic elements of uh, discourse. And so um, they basically, after much back and forth, decided to turn it down for civic and health content, like two very sensitive categories. However, um, when they then proposed, okay, that was good, let's go beyond that. Let's spread this to other categories because it's clearly just like a mechanism, a, prob- a fundamentally problematic mechanism. That's where we have these documents. We, we see those people bringing it to Mark Zuckerberg and Mark basically, basically saying no. He says, eh, I'll test it. I'll do it a little. Maybe we can do it in some at-risk countries like Ethiopia and Myanmar. But it, we're not going to go broad and we're not going to do it if it hurts MSI.
0: It's interesting that Ethiopia and Myanmar are the two countries referred to in the Stop the Steal post-January 6 memo that BuzzFeed published, uh, where they intended to kind of test some of the things they had learned about the networked harms that the Stop the Steal movement created on the platform as well. So if you're in Ethiopia or Myanmar listening to this, uh, know that you are the guinea pigs, I assume.
2: Well, it's funny that you say that because you know, that, that post-January that post 6th moment, what Facebook's response to that was, right, was to say, okay, actually, I think we're going to turn down politics in feed overall. And then this most recent August announcement, when they kind of gave an update on that um, and, and were a little bit more specific about how they would do it, how they would do it was actually to do this exact thing, which is like, let's turn down this part of the algorithm that is going to push stuff, is most likely to get reshares and comments. That was essentially what was proposed a year and a half ago. And Mark said, no, thank you.
0: Buzzfeed is a the theme that maybe runs through this on some level because of the Peretti uh, presence in these documents, but also uh, from some of the reporting that they have done. Earlier in the year, there was a report about a memo that Facebook had circulated internally around polarization, a kind of guide to its employees about how to talk about polarization Uh, and whether the social media firm had anything to do with it. And it referred to a bunch of external research, which Facebook said sort of showed that the connection was murky between whether social media does much to exacerbate um, these problems of division or outrage or not. It was interesting to me at the time that they didn't refer to any internal research. Looking back now on that kind of narrative and some of the public statements by people like Nick Clegg, what do you make of Facebook's kind of handling of this overall issue?
2: Yeah, it's funny. Even in, in our story, uh, you know, what their, their statement was is, well, there has been divisiveness and polarization for all time. You cannot possibly lay this at the feet of one company, which, of course, is true and fair. But what we saw in these documents was their own researchers finding evidence that the algorithm change increased divisiveness both by doing sort of social science research, you know, asking the people who were affected and by studying it through data science, you could see that aspects of the algorithm increased misinformation and made things angrier. So there's, as we're seeing over and over again in this series, there is a big gap between what they say publicly and what these terms of internal researchers and teams of internal researchers are finding.
0: And what's driving that? Is it is it simply duplicity, uh, or is it is it kind of organizational or governance issues here? What what do you think it? Where do you pinpoint it? I've seen some of the conversation on Facebook, or sorry, I should say on Twitter, from former Facebook executives, uh, people like Alex Stamos. I saw Katie Harbath, uh, others who have uh, been tweeting about your story, suggesting that there are real kind of organizational and governance questions now.
2: One of the things that was kind of remarkable to me or that I came away from reporting the story with was just how vast Facebook is and how there is no way for the people in one corner to really know what people in another corner are doing. I mean, it's just too big, right? It's too complicated. It's too big. The algorithm itself is too big and too complicated. So, I mean, part of what these documents show is an incredibly good faith effort, actually, on the part of Facebook, right? To get to the bottom of its problems, to really study them, to document it. So part of the company was really trying to fix these things and taking it really seriously. But the higher that you went up the organizational chain uh, and the more input from the political and PR world you got in there, And I would say, you know, they are a public company, right? So there is, of course, always the like quarterly earnings and responsibility to shareholders dimension of this. And whenever that trade off starts to happen, these integrity concerns just go to the bottom of the list.
0: Your story around Instagram and kind of public health, I'll say, uh, or the health of mental health, especially of teens, has already provoked multiple lawmakers to demand information from the company. I see a letter from, Uh, Senator Edward Markey, uh, Representatives Kathy Castor, Lori uh, uh, Trahan. I see that Marsha Blackburn and Richard Blumenthal have announced they're going to open an investigation. Have you seen any evidence that there is the same type of concern uh, about this issue of stoking outrage, polarization? And, And what do you make generally of the kind of response so far from lawmakers?
2: This is a much more complicated issue, I think, in some ways, right, than, than those. Um, so, I mean, the response overall, especially the industry, the media industry, has definitely been like, I knew it, kind of. In terms of from lawmakers, I think a lot of the problems shown by this story are ones of, of scale. Like, if Facebook is powerful enough that political parties have to change their policy positions <laughs> to get distribution on it, maybe something's wrong there. So I think this probably of the story speaks most to this the fundamental antitrust concerns that have been going on in DC now for for quite some time. So I expect that would probably be where people focus.
0: And yet antitrust doesn't seem quite like the right vehicle to manage this problem of there's a massive system that's somehow perturbing the public sphere and making everybody mad. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's the, the right vehicle necessarily or that we've got the, the right laws in place for that. So that'll be a real challenge for regulators.
2: Well, there are those efforts, right? In I guess Australia and elsewhere to sort of <laughs> take, it, take the algorithm out of the black box, right? This, this concept of the algorithm review board. So that's another avenue. I would say though, that after being so close to, to this story, I mean Facebook itself couldn't even figure out how to fix and tweak its algorithm to not harm society. So can you imagine how external regulators would create something to make that happen? It's like seems impossible.
0: I, mean, I guess clearly the first step is going to have to be to make sure that some independent researchers and or auditors from the government on some level, have access to this data uh, and can get out in front of it so that first time we hear of it in full detail isn't when someone backs a truck of USB sticks up to the Wall Street Journal. Possibly, yes. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Keach, thank you so much for, for joining me today.
2: Very glad to be here.
1: If you
0: are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. I spent six months working with Paul Barrett and Grant Sims at the NYU Center for Business and Human Rights on the report we published last week. Fueling the fire: How social media intensifies U.S. political polarization, and what can be done about it. We talked to more than forty experts, scholars, activists, as well as executives at social media firms, including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. I hope you'll check out the report. You can find it at the center's website at bhr.stern.nyu.edu. While we consider the domain of social media generally, as we say in the report, while it is not necessarily more culpable than the other major platforms. Facebook was our primary focus for three reasons. First, it's the largest player in the industry, with nearly 2.9 billion global users of its main platform and a billion users of its Instagram platform. And additionally, while none of the major platforms has been particularly transparent, Facebook has provided more information for us to analyze, as compared to rivals like YouTube and Twitter, which are also part of the problem. And finally, most of the academic research on social media and polarization has examined Facebook. Let's get to the discussion with Paul and Grant.
3: I'm Paul Barrett, Deputy Director of the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights and a
4: former journalist. I'm Grant Sums, a Research Fellow at the Center for Business and Human Rights at NYU.
0: So, Paul, you and I were corresponding earlier this year, back in March, right around the time that BuzzFeed had reported a playbook that it had come across from Facebook around how to respond to accusations that the company played a role in exacerbating political polarization. And we settled on that as a sort of interesting topic to explore, to look at the the evidence, to look at the social science research, to talk to various experts, and to try to determine what really that relationship might be. Right around the same time we were kind of writing up, I remember that original presses for a paper, Uh, Nick Clegg, the the vice president of global affairs and communications at Facebook, decided to write a medium piece where he kind of took on this topic as well. And it seemed like the right thing to do to kind of look into this and look under the hood. But this was sort of really a report in a long string of them from your center. Can you tell us a little bit about the Center for Business and Human Rights and its motivation in exploring social media?
3: Sure. The center, which is uh, run by Mike Posner, who's a longtime uh, human rights advocate who at this stage is a professor at the business school at NYU focusing on ethics and finance. Under his uh, leadership, the center looks at uh, a number of industries and focuses on the uh, human rights implications of uh, the conduct of those industries. So this is human rights as focused on companies as opposed to Human rights focused on government misdeeds, which is the more traditional uh, branch of the discipline. We've been looking at social media for several years now because these companies are powerful, influential, and their activities have a bearing on human rights, such as uh, access to free and fair election, free expression, and generally speaking, in a a broad sense, the health of democracy. And increasingly over time, uh, Facebook. Twitter, YouTube, and some of their rivals as well have had an influence on our politics. And uh, so we've we've looked at questions such as the effect of disinformation, the similarities and differences between disinformation uh, projected at the United States via social media and disinformation that comes uh, from within, uh, domestically generated falsehoods and, and political propaganda and so forth. Uh, We've looked at how content moderation, the vital function of deciding what content stays on the site and what content is removed. We've looked at how how that uh, operates uh, in practice. We did a report on the conservative claim that uh, the political right is censored systematically on social media platforms, which is a, a central part of the kind of public discourse about this industry and um, you know the evidence simply doesn't support that contention, and we thought it was important to explain how that all worked. So picking up on the question of social media's relationship to political polarization or divisiveness was kind of a natural uh, next step, and you know we were very happy to uh, you know, work with you uh, on that. You know we I think came up with some findings that are again very much at odds with what Facebook has been saying publicly. You mentioned the internal influence they were trying to exert with their own employees. BuzzFeed uh, got a hold of that memo that they circulated among employees to basically provide employees with arguments about why Facebook, in particular, social media in general, is not implicated in uh, extreme political divisiveness, partisan hatred, and so forth. Facebook has also made those statements publicly, and uh, you know we decided to look into them, and we came to the conclusion that uh, these uh, assertions are, are not correct. They're, they're misleading. The social science evidence takes you to different conclusions. And uh, because of the very dire consequences of the degree of polarization we now have in U.S. society, this is all an important thing to sort of lay out and explain and analyze and, and try to clarify for people what effects social media is really having.
0: And Grant, this isn't your first time around the, the block on, on these reports either. You participated in creating a couple of those in past as well.
4: Yeah, I worked with Paul on the uh, conservative bias report,
0: which did not make you popular with Fox News in particular.
4: No, it didn't, though. My photo didn't appear. Uh, So Paul got the uh, short end of the stick on that one. Yeah,
3: that was that was an interesting experience to be in the Fox News um, meat grinder for uh, 24 hours.
0: It was Tucker Carlson in particular that took issue with that one. Tucker
3: took issue with it. Uh, Laura Ingram took issue with it. Steve uh, Ducey think, took a couple. Yeah. Weeks. The uh, the morning show. Yeah, that's right. You know, it it was a very interesting illustration about how coordinated Fox is when they they put something on their agenda, it just comes up on every show every hour. But you know, they didn't have any uh, anything substantive to say other than you know this report is preposterous, and uh, trying to make a, a very silly allegation that. We were uh, steered to this conclusion by our liberal benefactor, uh, a guy named uh, Craig Newmark, uh, who uh, was the founder of Craigslist and has been generous in supporting the center, um, but had absolutely nothing to do with either choosing the topic or determining what the conclusion was.
0: Well, let's just take a minute to walk through some of the research that we looked at. And uh, Paul, you kind of took the lead, especially on that first section of the report, which goes through the social science research and in particular looks at a couple of the key studies that Facebook had referred to in its review of polarization literature. Can you kind of just walk us through a couple of those studies and why they're important?
3: I actually want to start with some academic writing before that, which Facebook has not referred to um, because it, it very much contradicts Facebook's position that it, it is completely unclear and therefore unlikely uh, that social media... Use has uh, contributed to uh, political divisiveness. What I want to start with is a a couple of kind of literature review style studies done by uh, academics from universities like Stanford, NYU, Harvard, uh, et cetera, uh, that have looked at the body of research on this question and come to the conclusion that while social media, just as a logical matter, cannot be blamed for causing political polarization in the first instance. And that's because political polarization has been increasing in the United States for decades, long before social media showed up. But while it can't be tagged as the cause of polarization, it does appear to exacerbate partisan hate- hatred. So a distinction uh, that's really important to make clear. Uh, and we certainly emphasize that in our report. And there's a, an article in uh, the journal Science uh, that was co-authored by no fewer than 15 uh, researchers in political science, sociology and elsewhere uh, who came to that conclusion. Not the prime cause, but a, a, an amplifying or intensifying uh, factor. And then just before we published our report, there was an academic article in a journal called uh, Trends in Cognitive Science. And uh, the five co-authors there came to the very same conclusion. Uh, the term they used was facilitator, that social media facilitates a heightened political polarization. Okay, so those are kind of the overview uh, assessments of the whole body of evidence by the academics. And as I say, I think not coincidentally, Facebook just seems to be blind to those, those articles. What we might talk about today is several of the specific articles um, that have been part of the conversation. One of one of them, which a uh, was published in 2020 and was done by uh, researchers at Stanford and elsewhere. Pointed to the fact that if people, experiment subjects, are paid a modest amount of money to stay off Facebook, in this case for a month long period ending just after the 2018 midterm elections, and then they're surveyed, the uh, finding is that the degree of polarization uh, that their, ad- their attitudes um, toward their political opponents um, has become more hostile on particular policy issues. And when you measure something called effective uh, polarization, which means divisiveness based just on identity, you hate the other side because they are the other side as opposed to a particular disagreement, that there wasn't a, a statistically significant change uh, there. You know, that, that's a significant and complicated finding. We went to uh, one of the Co authors of the study, uh, a guy named Matthew Genskow uh, at Stanford, asked him to explain it along with um, some other studies that he had been involved with. And he pointed out that this is a a limited finding that does find that staying off Facebook decreases issue polarization, but you can't say much about effective polarization based on that one study. Studies that Facebook has put a lot of emphasis on uh, include one that looked at the level of polarization. In the United States over 40 years, as compared to the levels of polarization in comparable advanced democracies around the world. And that uh, study found that while polarization increased rather dramatically over those 40 years in the United States, in other countries, there were very different patterns. In some countries, there were increases, but more modest increases. In some countries, the degree of polarization went down. And the conclusion from all of that was, well, since social media, well, the internet first, and then social media as a subset of the internet, are, are global phenomenon, that given this all this variation, you can't come to the conclusion that social media is the driving force behind polarization in the United, in the United States. Um, because in other countries, you have very different patterns of degrees of polarization. And, and that all makes sense, I think, intuitively, that... Over a long period of time, um, you're going to see different patterns in different countries because social circumstances are different, political circumstances, and so forth. But what Genskow pointed out was that study, the bulk of the years that were studied actually came before the social media era, and it doesn't really speak at all one way or the other to the question of what's been going on for the last four or five years since social media has been so pronounced in its influence, at least in the United States, um, it just doesn't speak to that. Its finding really has no, no bearing on that question. Uh, and so, Facebook's embrace of that study, I, I think, deserves skepticism. Similarly, there's yet another study that was published in 2017, as I recall, that compared age groups, demographic groups, a young group, middle age group, and an older group, and looked at uh, degrees of polarization among those groups in the United States and found that the increase in polarization over a 20-year period was greatest in the oldest cohort, people 65 and older. And that's the cohort that was least likely to be using social media over that 20-year period. Again, Facebook and some other analysts draw a rather dramatic conclusion from that research that that shows that social media is not implicated in political polarization. However, Genskow again observed, uh, one of the co-authors, that first of all, that period predated in large part the social media industry, excuse me, era. And therefore, what you can say about the bearing of that research on what's been going on, say, since 2015 or 2016 is very limited. It shows you something, but it doesn't do the work that Facebook would have you believe. So that, that's, those are three of the studies that we looked at
0: in our report. I'll just point out our report came out on Monday and on Wednesday, the wall street journal uh, broke a big report on Facebook's own internal research on this question, including a look at uh, dynamics around the world, uh, which not only kind of confirmed our conclusion, but of course sort of, I don't know, really uh, blew out of the water. Any question about whether there's a relationship between the platform and stoking, outrage. And one of the things I was most interested in that is that it pointed to uh, lots of evidence, not just here in the United States, but also around the world, which is something that Grant, you looked at in particular.
4: There are no shortage of examples, unfortunately, of how social media and polarization uh, go hand in hand abroad. Uh, Most of us are pretty familiar with the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar and anti-Muslim, rising anti-Muslim sentiment in India. Uh, But we chose to focus on two countries in particular, the Philippines and uh, Israel, in the context of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian fighting this past spring. And the two lessons that we drew from those are, number one, that social media can create fresh fissures in a society Uh, such as it has done in the Philippines. And number two, that it can throw fuel on the fire. It can exacerbate existing tensions and make uh, circumstances considerably worse uh, than they might otherwise have been. So in the Philippines, for example, uh, Maria Ressa, uh, who you've had on this podcast has said that prior to now President Duterte's campaign in 2016, the Philippines really didn't have polarization in its news circles. Everyone started more or less in the center but that started to change uh, once uh, candidate Duterte built up what was essentially a propaganda machine on Facebook in particular. And uh, he used this. Uh, his army of trolls uh, used Facebook to spread his quite violent anti-drug, anti-drug dealer rhetoric uh, throughout the country, boost his popularity, harass uh, the regime's opponents, human rights activists, journalists. His army of trolls was a major reason why he was able to win in 2016, it has continued uh, to be a very powerful tool for him and his administration in stamping out opposition. As far as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is concerned, we saw in May of this year, as uh, violence started to break out there, that misinformation was rampant across a whole number of platforms—Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, YouTube— Two instances uh, illustrate how this threatened to make what was an extremely tense situation uh, much, much worse. One was uh, a Hebrew language post and an Israeli group populated mainly by residents of a Tel Aviv neighborhood that essentially said that a Palestinian mob was heading their way and that they should protect their children. This was of course completely false, but engendered uh, additional fear in that community. Likewise, a Arabic language post uh, suggested in a large Palestinian WhatsApp group that the Israeli Defense Force was uh, about to invade Gaza, also completely untrue, uh, but nevertheless exacerbated the tensions on the ground there.
0: You know, Interestingly, in that Wall Street Journal report, we see further confirmation of this dynamic of quite literally political parties, politicians changing their platforms, changing the way they communicate with their followers in order to go more negative. Interestingly, I think kind of bearing on, on that, that phenomenon of groups not so much even communicating on occasion with their own followers or their own constituents, but seeking to Drag or hang out their you know opponents as a way of of gaining you know engagement or or reach on on Facebook, uh, which seems to be something that is now borne out in those documents.
3: Yeah, I, I think the, the there's a lot of value at at several levels um, to the work that the Wall Street Journal has done. One of which is pointing out that Facebook, it, for one is very much aware of these problems, has been studying them very intensively internally, and has itself, in the voice of its own data scientists and engineers, articulated how and why all of this has, has transpired. And it's top management in that company, Mark Zuckerberg, um, that has said, well, we're not going to fix this problem if, it, if the fix would impinge on engagement levels. Um, and the reason for that, of course, is because engagement is the coin of the realm. It's, it's what is used to measure user attention. And that's what's sold to advertisers. We pointed out this phenomenon, the examples of uh, moments when Facebook has been introspective, has unleashed its own researchers to assess how the platform operates and how it affects uh, users and society at large. And, and that's, as a logical matter, that's That is evidence that the problem exists. I mean, Facebook would not be concerned about it and would not be trying to fix it if there was nothing there to fix. And and the journal expose really reinforced that uh, to a much greater degree than I would say we've been able to ever before. I mean, I think they've brought forward a volume of information that just hasn't existed before publicly.
0: So we then kind of coming back to the United States, you know, looked at a range of different consequences of division um, and how those kind of affect domestic politics here. I think it's important to point out, though, that we accept not all polarization is bad. You know, it's not not the case that because people disagree that that means there's something wrong. And certainly that in the past a situation in the United States has been very polarized, particularly at moments where there have been efforts to secure social justice, racial justice, uh, civil rights, things of that nature. But nevertheless, there are these consequences of extreme polarization uh, that play on a range of things, whether it's legislative dysfunction, erosion of, of norms, radicalization, violent extremism, you know, I could go on. Um, and we kind of got into that a bit, look at some of the specifics of that, particularly in this current moment post-January 6th.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I mean, you're, you're making two points. One, polarization in the uh, abstract or even in, in practical terms at times of conflict over legitimate controversial uh, issues, you're going to have polarization in, in a democracy. And that's not necessarily a symptom of something bad going on. That's, that, that's sort of point number one. The second point is, even if you're able, as a social scientist, say, to measure a sharp increase in polarization uh, in a given country, the United States, that abstract measure is not what we need to be worried about, What we need to be worried about is what consequences or effects flow from that kind of extreme across the board polarization, where a huge swath of the population views another swath of the population, not just as wrong on an issue like abortion or taxation or immigration policy, um, but views the other side as a threat to the country itself, as as an existential danger to, to democracy. And when you have that kind of point of view, you may be feel you're justified in doing just about anything to stop the other side or attack the other side. And I think that's kind of the spirit that we've seen, uh, unfortunately, uh, in the last several years uh, in the United States, in in our politics. It's not spread across the political spectrum in an even way. This is not a symmetrical uh, problem where Republicans do it, but Democrats do it too. This is happening primarily on the political right. Um, And that's been measured by social scientists and there's study after study finding that the degree of uh, political uh, hatred in the country is more heightened on the right than it is on the left. And that the uh, way that people on the right interpret and use social media in particular and how they interpret information they encounter uh, via social media is different um, in the sense that people on the right, as measured by all kinds of research, will tend to accept highly dubious factual assertions and outright uh, disinformation if for no other reason than it tends to agree with their premises that, you know, the country's going to hell in a handbasket, there are deep state conspiracies, and as of 2020 and into 2021, that, you know, an election was stolen uh, away from Donald Trump, uh, and therefore our, you know, election system is, is no longer legitimate.
0: Just kind of point out one of the studies there uh, from Liliana Mason, uh, definitely worth looking at the sort of empirical research on division and, you know, some of the underlying cleavages, of course, which are racial animus very much kind of comes through in the research from from Mason, but also from other researchers that we refer to. But I do want to spend just a bit of time on the recommendations. There was one review of our paper, which from Joshua Benton at Neiman Lab, which I I laughed at. Paul didn't maybe find as funny. Um, I'm laughing now. I'm like, uh,
3: my initial reaction (laughs) is not so... uh, Not so forgiving, but uh, yeah, by all means, everyone has a right to uh, make a joke if they wish to.
0: Well, we made some fairly earnest recommendations, I should say, about uh, what should be done about this. And Josh said, oh, you know, well, maybe uh, these earnest recommendations aren't going to necessarily help us with our crazy QAnon uncle and and how we can kind of bring him back into the fold on some level. (laughs) Um, But let's just walk through a couple of the recommendations. The first to government
3: at a very high political level. We made the, you know, possibly obvious, but I think still worth making point that we need to see uh, leadership on this issue exerted at the very highest level. I think it would change the debate if uh, President Biden were to spend some of his political capital, some of his time and energy and speechwriter time and energy um, to to make a public declaration of the degree to which this is all a problem, that, that social media is contributing to the degree of divisiveness we see in this country and that his government wants to work with the industry, but also to regulate the industry um, so we can can figure out how to lessen this problem without interfering with free speech rights. If such a speech were were given, it would be a big deal. It would be noticed. I think it it really would galvanize the whole debate. And and you'd want it to be very different from the kind of offhand comments that unfortunately the president made over the summer uh, you know, just saying, all you know, they're killing people in connection with misinformation and the pandemic. You know, that's an unhelpful quip, um, which he sort of partially walked back. That's kind of the opposite of what we're thinking about. Don't want to do that. You do want to make a serious thought out argument as to why this is a problem and how we could begin to address it. And how can we begin to address it? I think that when you're talking about government, that the Biden administration should be working with allies on Capitol Hill um, to come up with a uh, plan to uh, empower the government uh, to exert regulatory oversight uh, of the social media industry. And um, a couple of you know, preliminary thoughts on that. One, it's something of an anom- anomaly that this industry really has no, no sustained oversight from the government. I mean, if you look at the equity markets, the SEC oversees that. If you look at broadcast uh, and radio, the FCC oversees that. If you look at farmers and farms, Department of Agriculture puts out all kinds of regulations. Come to social media, it's powerful. Some of the most influential companies uh, in our economy, no one's really looking over their shoulder in a sustained way. Uh, So we've suggested that legislation can be passed to specifically empower the Federal Trade Commission, um, which already has as its mission looking out for consumer protection is one, one of its core missions, as well as antitrust. And that's a whole other issue. They're suing... Facebook on antitrust grounds, we'll set that to one side. But if the FTC were to draft with advice from the industry, uh, a code of conduct that would, for example, require the industry to do uh, radically more uh, disclosure of how their algorithms actually operate so that we were no longer staring at a black box, but instead the public, academic researchers, policymakers, lawmakers could say, oh, I see now, this is how it comes to pass that certain content shows up in Justin's feed and doesn't show up in Grant's feed. This is how these companies automatically rank, recommend, and remove content at, at a scale that's almost unimaginable. You know, hundreds of millions, if not billions, of pieces of content a day. This is how it all operates. I think if that were, if the companies were forced to disclose that kind of information, there'd be a, a foundation for far greater accountability. People would understand we'd be in a position to critique and demand changed behavior. And I think the industry would would feel pressure to do that. And if they wouldn't do that, the FTC would be in a position to say, you've promised X in terms of ranking and recommendations, but you're doing Y. We feel that's deceptive trade practice and we're going to bring a lawsuit against you. Right now, that's literally not possible. Neither the FTC nor the rest of us know what the hidden why is. We only know what the companies are promising. So if you pulled this information out into the public, it would create a whole new uh, dynamic for overseeing social media.
0: We do call out Jan Schakowsky, a Democrat from Illinois, and Kathy Castor, Democrat in Florida. Proposal they have the Online Consumer Protection Act that would address quite a lot of that. It points,
3: in the, it points in the same direction that I was just uh, talking about. Maybe not quite as ambitious as, as our report, but it's easy for us to ambitious. be ambitious uh, sitting where we are. Uh, but certainly, I'd love to see that bill move forward, have hearings on that bill, um, and, and try to shift the discussion away from the almost obsessive attention to a platform liability under Section 230, which is what has been debated over and over and over again with with absolutely no uh, real progress.
0: Grant, we then got on to calling on the platforms themselves to go ahead and take some action. Um, I don't know if you want to just walk us through a couple of the suggestions that we offer to Facebook and to Twitter and to YouTube.
4: Sure. Related to what Paul was saying, uh, one of the major recommendations is that the platforms should do whatever they can to systematically depolarize their systems. We know we can, they can do this because we've seen the leaked documents, we've seen the investigations like uh, the Wall Street Journal investigation. Yeah. We know that when the temperature is high, when there is a threat of violence or social unrest that play, Facebook in particular can take actions that will quote unquote, you know, cool the temperature or uh, try to lower the temperature somewhat to ensure that the conversation on its platform doesn't spill over into real life violence. While we were waiting for the Derek Chauvin verdict uh, several months ago, Facebook took preemptive measures to ensure that the conversation occurring on the platform didn't get to the point where, as I was saying, violence would uh, spill into the streets. So we got to make sure that they institutionalize these depolarizing measures to ensure that violence or on platform discussion never gets to the point where uh, real violence is likely to occur off platform. Another point, also along the lines that Paul was discussing, is to make whatever depolarizing adjustments the platforms make more transparent because there's a real problem that overcorrecting will silence legitimate speech and will, will quell legitimate debate. And so we've got to make sure that whatever actions are taken can be reviewed by outside researchers or other watchdogs. And then another measure would be to double the number of human content moderators. It's very difficult at this stage for uh, the automated algorithms to parse the nuances of debates uh, and posts, especially on controversial topics. And so if we can double the number of actual human beings sitting down and looking at these, uh, at the most controversial posts, then we stand a higher chance of ensuring that we avoid the false positives that threaten to quell legitimate debate.
0: You know, it's interesting to think about, you know, the Chauvin example, especially because uh, that was one that has been discussed in the halls of, of Congress. And Monica Bickert, a policy official, was asked about that and, you know, did point out that right now the kind of dial that, that Facebook might turn to, to reduce outrage on the platform does result in kind of free expression being stamped out. And so that kind of points to the fact that Facebook has identified that there's a resource issue, that when it takes those types of actions, that it has a resource resource issue um, and a systems issue when it comes to the result. So uh, definitely something to good. I'll just toss in the opportunity that we describe around the January 6th committee Uh, which has, of course, requested a massive amount of information from the social platforms and seems to be in its kind of constitution or in the, you know, the document that set out its workflow seems to be concerned with exactly this question, how disinformation uh, around the 2020 election led to uh, the violent insurrection at the Capitol. So a good opportunity to kind of look at this experimental example, essentially, of, of the worst possible outcome of political discourse turning into, of course, violent uh, activity. Any, any big surprises for you, Paul, in doing this report? Anything that you kind of look back on now and say, I didn't know that before we started doing this?
3: I don't know that this is a, uh, a headline type surprise, but I, I didn't really know the history of polarization in the United States. Either that is susceptible to being measured the way it's measured, or that, you know, what the particular pattern was, the fact that in the middle of the 20th century, if you, if you just stu- stared at American political parties and said, how polarized, was, there was barely any polarization. Everyone was agreeing because the two political parties were heterogeneous, both had po- uh, conservatives and liberals in them, and a lot of voters and political actors were still being completely excluded from the system, whether it's African Americans Uh, members of other minority groups, women, what have you, you roll time forward and you begin to see, you know, the the parties re sort themselves and you have conservative Democrats move to the Republican party, liberal Republicans literally almost, you know, sort of die off and you end up with the parties we have today, which are a very liberal democratic party and a very conservative Republican party. And then you throw into that trend uh, factors like The rise of partisan cable TV uh, in the 1990s, simultaneous with or preceded by, you know, right-wing talk radio, Rush Limbaugh and company. You know, political leaders who are increasingly over time not interested in bipartisanship. They're interested in polarization as a way to get reelected. And then you throw into that mix social media and suddenly you now have a, a progression that seems almost designed uh, to lead to extreme divisiveness and, a, and the loss of a sense of common purpose, or, or the dread idea of compromise—that you can actually muddle your way forward potentially, not pleasing everybody on either side—but um, that whole you know idea is 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 gone from our politics. I mean, you have someone like Mitch McConnell, who's not even viewed as a as, as a particularly radical member of the Republican Party anymore. Um, but you know, he's said for the last two Democratic presidents, He has said out, out loud, "Our purpose is to thwart this presidency. See that the incumbent does not get reelected. That, that's his program." <laughs> well, if that's the program of one of the two parties, you're going to, ha- you know, you're going to have a hard time uh, dealing with a lot of uh, social problems. So, to me, that, that the sweep of all that was was fascinating to think about. I had never really thought about it very much before. And thinking about social media kicking in someplace in the 2010s as as a player pointed to. The fact that, that, you know, technology itself can electrify a social trend that's been going on for decades and really amplify the effect of that social trend.
4: Grant, anything from you? Yeah, similar to Paul, I'm not sure how uh, headline grabbing this will be, but I naively came into this project not fully understanding how nuanced polarization was as a field of study. Uh, I, I can recall, you know, no sh- small number of calls that the three of us held when we were you know, going around the horn trying to figure out exactly what is this thing that we're trying to look at. And for me, it was, there were tough definitional problems at the beginning to sort through uh, conceptually comparing, you know, one measure or study of polarization with another presents its own unique set of problems. Uh, And so it took me longer uh, than I thought it would to get my mind around this beast. So for me, that was probably uh, the most surprising aspect.
3: let me jump in and just add one other thing. Something that I hadn't really thought about systematically at all that that, that cropped up in our conversations uh, with various scholars and and reading uh, studies and, and analyses was the argument that let's stop paying so much attention to this polarization question and the degree to which social media contributes to polarization. That's it's kind of a distraction. It's taking us away from the real problem here. And the real problem is the rise of white supremacy and, um, you know, basically racist ideology that has uh, reasserted itself and made itself evident again in recent years. That was an uh, an interesting argument and one that we ultimately had to grapple with. And if that argument's right then we sh- really shouldn't be bothering with this report, we should be doing something else. And I think it it may it actually makes a good contribution as a reminder that malign consequences of polarization are not uh, symmetrical all across the political spectrum that this is, you know, our era, this is a phenomenon on the right. And um, which is a more general way of making the point that, like, white supremacy is a huge problem. You know, ultimately, I think we we stuck to the conclusion that extreme political hatred is important to worry about in in a broad, general way, not focusing exclusively on white supremacy and and, and that very acute problem that American society has, and that concern about about racism, including structural racism, has to be part of the discussion, a significant part of the discussion, but it doesn't have to eclipse the idea that politics in general has kind of gone off the rails and social media is part of the explanation for that. Um, So that was a very interesting and surprising thing. Not that I was surprised that there's racism in America, but the argument that you shouldn't focus on polarization was a provocative and interesting argument. Um, And I'm glad we came across it and had to grapple with it.
0: Yeah, I would actually just maybe add to that. There were a couple of thinkers that we came across that I think kind of squared those two things. One was uh, Jonathan Stray at uh, University of California, Berkeley at the Center for Human Compatible AI, who kind of looked at this question and, you know, really looks at it more from a perspective of of peace building or peace building theory. How do you kind of create space for deliberation and space for people to come together Um, even when those underlying cleavages may exist and are profound around race, uh, or around other issues, you know, how do we kind of create a a space where we can maybe make progress on those questions as well. And, you know, if we're all inside a Skinner box that is making us outraged and hate each other and fight over everything and reduce every issue down to identity, then we're never going to make any progress on, on race or, or, or gender or any other social justice issue we might want to talk about. So I, I kind of, I think I kind of, maybe that's my surprising when mm-hmm. I kind of conclude with that sort of sense that you know, the real reason to address polarization on some level is so that we can get to some of those deeper questions and problems and uh, audacious issues that are fundamental to the American conundrum. You know, these things we've been dealing with for hundreds of years now. If we we can't kind of figure out how to make our democracy work, which is in many ways a kind of device for coming to consensus, then we'll never make progress on those issues either.
3: I agree with you. I think Stray's Thinking is very interesting and provocative, and does provide a, an avenue for kind of reconciling some, some of these ideas. Um, and he's—I remember him saying something in passing, which is just obviously true, but also I think people forget about it sometimes. You know, basically addressing himself to the left, I, I guess. You know, he said, "Look, 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. You can't just like dismiss 75 million people. You have to figure out some strategy for moving forward that has some hope of eventually." Getting that slice of America now referred to derisively and with good justification at times as the Trump base, you have to figure out something that, that brings them, points them back toward the fold. If if, if they're just going to stew in their juices and fixate on conspiracy theories, and the left is just going to, you know, say nasty things about them, that, that's that's going to be a recipe for a lot of uh, problems continuing.
0: Well, at the very least, we could hope that massive and highly profitable social media firms do not contribute to the problem, and are at worst neutral. And hopefully some of our recommendations will help us get to that point. Yeah, well put. Well, Paul and Grant, thank you very much. I very much enjoyed this process and uh, enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you both.
3: And thanks to you, Justin. Um, Really a much uh, better and deeper project uh, as a result of your participation.
0: Thanks, Justin. That’s it for this week’s show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin@techpolicy.press at or find us on Twitter at Techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones, thanks to our guests, and of course, thank you for listening.
1: Tech Policy Press.